millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm your host, Colleen. On the evening of November 27, 1960, police officers were on their usual patrol of the West Hills near Portland, Oregon, when they came across a car stopped in a clearing. 500 yards from the nearest road, the car was not immediately visible to the officers, nor was the lifeless body of Larry Payton, a 19-year-old Portland native, who was lying dead in his vehicle after being stabbed multiple times. As well as evidence of a struggle, there was evidence of another person, a woman whose purse and coat were still in the car, yet she was nowhere to be seen. Overzealous police officers contaminated the scene, and it would be eight years before anybody would be charged in relation to this crime. But were the right people brought to justice? or is the real killer still a mystery? Larry Payton and Beverly Allen were teens when they met at their summer job at Crater Lake National Park in Southern Oregon. Larry's father had a stake in running the park, and Beverly, who was a Port Townsend native, was making some money before heading to college to study home economics. The pair became an item over the summer and remained together when Beverly returned to college at Washington State and Larry started his sophomore year at Oregon State. The pair stayed in touch and Beverly planned to visit Portland over Thanksgiving break to spend the holidays with Larry, his parents, and his siblings, Kenny and Sally. From all accounts, the visit went well and one article stated that the pair were talking about an engagement and marriage. Simply, Beverly and Larry were in love and just enjoying their time together. On the evening of November 26, 1960, Larry and Beverly left the Peyton home after an evening meal to go to a local amusement center. It was around 9 p.m. when they drove off, and they were seen once more around 10.30 in downtown Portland, but their movements after that are unknown. When the teens failed to return home, Larry's parents became worried. Not returning home was out of character for him, and a missing persons report was filed for both of them. The next evening, around 9 p.m. on November 27th, the police were conducting a routine sweep of an area that was popular with teenagers. 
The area was known as a local lover's lane, and it was secluded around 500 yards from the nearest road. It was private, as all good lover's lanes are, so police would check in since they couldn't see it by just driving by. On this evening, the police made a grisly discovery. A car was stopped up against an embankment, and the driver's side door was open. When the police shone his light into the car, he saw a young man was curled over in the front seat, and he was dead. A head injury and stab wounds were clearly visible, and an autopsy would reveal a skull fracture caused by a blunt object, most likely the butt of a gun. The autopsy also recorded 23 stab wounds from a 4-inch blade all over his torso, both back and front. There was blood splatter throughout the car and signs that the young man had fought his attackers. Blood pooled outside the vehicle, and there was also evidence of a female presence in the car. There was a woman's purse and coat and a piece of a woman's shirt. The woman, however, was nowhere to be found. It was quickly discovered that the man in the car was the recently reported missing person, Larry Payton, and the purse and the coat turned out to belong to Beverly Allen. The first officers on the scene immediately searched the car for clues, not understanding at the time that they were hindering the investigation and not helping it. They may have destroyed or tainted evidence that could have been key to the investigation. Robbery was not the motive for the attack. Police found $11 in Beverly's purse and $3 in Larry's wallet. The car keys were not in the ignition and were not found when searching the car. They were later discovered in some brush nearby and this may have been a sign that the killers did not want to make it easy for Larry to follow them in his vehicle if he survived. Beverly's glasses were found smashed outside the car along with some nylon rope. While some fingerprints were lifted, police mentioned in a 1960 Capital Journal article that they were not hopeful that this would lead to any concrete leads. There was a small penknife found on the hood of the car, however the significance of the knife is not known, as it was not the murder weapon. Maybe it was left by mistake, or maybe it was left to send a message, it isn't really clear. There was a bullet hole in the windscreen of the car, however Larry had not been shot and no weapon had been found in or around the vehicle. Testing would reveal that the gun had been shot from inside the car. With Beverly missing, the police worked on the assumption that she had been abducted at the time of Larry's murder and had either been kidnapped and kept alive or killed somewhere else. Police dogs combed the nearby areas looking for any sign of her, but they didn't find anything. The dogs managed to follow Bev's scent for nearly half of a mile before losing it. They briefly picked it up again, but just as quickly lost it, indicating that Beverly had left the scene in a vehicle. Police continued to investigate, but leads seemed to be going nowhere, and they were no closer to finding Beverly or finding Larry's killer. They did believe that they were looking for two culprits, assumed to be men, 
one armed with a knife that stabbed Larry and the other with a gun that shot a bullet through the windshield. Newspapers covered the case with a large photo of Beverly accompanying the articles, keeping her name and face fresh in the eyes of the public. Beverly's father offered a $1,000 reward for information leading to his daughter's location. There was one false lead when someone wrote a message for help in lipstick on a woman's restroom mirror. However, the lead detective discounted it quickly. There were two lipsticks found in Beverly's purse in the car, and the detective doubted that she would have a third on her person. There were false sightings called in by concerned citizens, and others called in just simply to waste police time. Either way, none of these leads led anywhere. As the holiday season approached, there were still no solid leads and no answers. Christmas came and went with Larry and Beverly missing from the Peyton and Allen family tables. But that ended 44 days after Beverly went missing. On January 9, 1961, 30 miles northwest of Portland, she was found near U.S. Highway 26, which is also known as the Sunset Highway. Her body was found by a road worker laying against young trees in an overgrown slope, far enough from the road that she may have laid there for six weeks without being seen. Only the trees stopped her from falling into the valley below. She was face down and partially clothed. Her ski sweater was found nearby, and she was wearing only one shoe. Nylon cord was found on her, and it matched the cord found near the car where Larry was found. And this physical evidence connected the two deaths. It was not immediately clear what Beverly's cause of death was, and authorities had to wait until an autopsy was completed. The autopsy found that Beverly had been sexually assaulted, and her cause of death was ruled to be strangulation. It was not confirmed if she was strangled with the nylon rope that was found with her, or if she was strangled manually. After the discovery of Beverly's body, police received tips about cars that had been seen stopped in the general area that the body was found in. However, none of these leads panned out. Beverly's family laid her to rest at Laurel Cemetery in her hometown of Port Townsend. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Locals and police had the same questions, and there were rumors flying around that Bev had been kept alive in an apartment prior to her murder and killed shortly before she was found. This would explain the six week gap between her disappearance and her discovery. Determining Beverly's time of death was made difficult due to the time and location of her discovery. It was winter and exposure to cold can slow decomposition. The area where she was found is elevated and higher elevation means cooler temperatures. Despite performing the testing that was available at the time, no specific time of death could be declared. So now police had two murders and two bodies, but they needed a suspect. The investigation was extensive. An article in the Desert Sun from 1968 stated that 4,000 people had been questioned in relation to the murders, and more than 600 suspects had been eliminated. 275 samples were sent to a lab for testing, and over 100,000 miles had been covered in various searches. The investigation scale was large, and police were doing everything they could to find the killer or killers. After a year of investigation, the file on the case was 2,020 pages long, and police were still working on the case daily. A man named Edward Wayne Edwards was named a person of interest. He was in jail for making a false call to the fire department. However, he had a bullet wound in his arm that he could not explain. Before police could ask him anything, Edwards escaped. Shortly after he escaped the Portland jail, he was placed on the FBI's most wanted list. To this day, some people believe that Ed Edwards was responsible for Larry and Beverly's death, even though when he was captured in Cleveland in 1962, he gave a reasonable explanation for the bullet wound in his arm and was cleared of suspicion. In June of 1965, Beverly's body was exhumed. Police needed to determine her time of death, and there were still rumors floating around about her being kept alive for some time after she was abducted. Although the time of death was unable to be determined at the time, they may have had new testing methods that could be tried. After retesting to try and narrow down her time of death, 
It was stated that she was not kept alive for a long time after her disappearance, which disproved the rumors. After Beverly's exhumation, the case appeared to go cold. The lead detective on the case would only give interviews on the anniversary of the murders to keep the case in the public eye. In 1966, the detective gave a rare non-anniversary interview to a journalist who was running a series on Oregon's unsolved murders. The story was published on September 27th, and by October there was a new lead, and it was a break in the case that the detective had been waiting for. A letter was received from a woman named Veronica Essex, known as Nikki, who wanted to share information with the detective. Her information was thought to be credible, and she described several pieces of information that were not released to the media, and these were things that only people close to the crime would know. She knew not only about the knife found at the scene, but it was found balanced on the hood of the car, and this detail was not shared. She also claimed that she knew who the murderers were. The lead detective on the case had been the only detective for quite some time, as interest in leads faded away. This new information from Nikki prompted the addition of a second detective, someone to help him chase down this new lead. They chased it all the way to the home of Mr. and Mrs. Jorgensen, a couple in their 70s, and parents to seven children, who had all since grown up and left home. Of particular interest to the detectives were two of the Jorgensen sons, Edward and Carl. Mr. and Mrs. Jorgensen were questioned repeatedly over a period of months about their sons, their whereabouts the night of the murders, and their potential involvement. The Jorgensons denied their sons had any involvement, but did admit that their sons were at a house party near the scene of the crime the night of the murder. On August 13th, a grand jury heard the evidence presented by the detectives as well as testimony from 14 people and handed down indictments for the murders of Larry and Beverly. By Monday, August 19, 1968, the detectives were ready to arrest Edward and Carl Jorgensen, along with a friend of theirs named Robert Gordon Robert, for the murders of Larry Payton and Beverly Allen. Edward Jorgensen was a married father of five who ran an automotive garage. He was 36 years old when he was arrested by detectives as he lay in his bed Monday morning. His wife and children were present and witnessed his arrest. His brother Carl Jorgensen used to be a boxer before he started a career in sales. As the 27-year-old arrived at work at a high-end shoe store, he was arrested by authorities. It took longer to locate 28-year-old Robert George Robert, who was not in Salem, Oregon, as police thought. They tracked him to Portland and picked him up later that afternoon. Robert had a previous conviction, when in 1962 he assaulted an elderly grocery clerk and he was on parole when he was arrested. The three men were held without bail from their August 19th arrest until the trial, and all three were charged with two counts of first-degree murder. 
On September 3rd, the men were in court to enter their pleas, despite their lawyers trying to push the date out to buy the men more time. And it was ruled that all three would be tried separately. In the trials, which took two months, the prosecution's case largely hinged on the testimony of eyewitnesses. While each man received his own trial, the evidence presented at each trial was almost identical. For this reason, I won't go into each trial in depth, but I'll give an overview of the evidence that was presented. The testimony of the letter writer Nikki Essex was key at the trial. She testified that the three defendants met up with Larry and Beverly on the night of the murder at a local restaurant. She said that she convinced the couple to join them for drinks in the West Hills, where they were headed to a party, and that they left for this party in separate cars. She alleged that the cars were racing and nearly crashed. The car that the defendants were driving was damaged, so they stopped to pick up someone else's car and continued on their way to the party. While on their way to the party, they saw Larry's car on the road, and they got angry about the recent accident and initiated a car chase the rest of the way to West Hills. Once at the West Hills location, the defendants left their car and approached Larry's, where a fight broke out. Nikki said that she left to go back to the car before the fight reached its conclusion, so she didn't see the murder. She saw the three men bring Beverly back to their car after abducting her from Larry's car. The men then dropped Nikki off on a street in Portland near her home and drove away with Beverly while Nikki walked herself to her house. According to Nikki, she forgot about the events of the night due to trauma. Nikki was 18 at the time of the murder and in her mid to late 20s when the case finally went to trial. When questioned as to why she did not come forward with this information sooner, Nikki said that she didn't remember the night of the murder until two years ago. However, through hypnosis, therapy, and truth serum, she was able to recall her memories. Nikki also attributes her criminal past with not coming forward saying that she didn't like the police because she used to regularly break the law. It wasn't until her daughter was born that she left that life of crime behind. While the validity of Nikki's testimony would be called into question, there were several other witnesses who corroborated parts of her statement. One witness was a woman named Lorraine Jorgensen, and despite sharing a last name, Lorraine is not related to the Jorgensen brothers. She testified that she had received drunken confessions from the defendants, admitting to the murders several years after they occurred. Lorraine Jorgensen had a history of mental health concerns, which the defense used as an attempt to discredit her testimony. The defense alleged that Nikki and Lorraine were not of sound mind and requested a psych review to be conducted on both of them prior to their trial testimony. This request was denied by the judge, so the defense had to change their plan and instead used the cross-examination to try and call the witness's credibility into question in front of the jury. 
Experts for the defense testified to how Nikki could not have accurately remembered the night of the murders after she previously had forgotten everything. The state said that she had lost her memory after the trauma of witnessing the events, but was able to recall the memories through hypnosis and therapy, which Nikki freely agreed to. The only choice that the defense was left with was to try and poke holes in the validity of Nikki's memory recall by planting doubts of its accuracy in the jury's mind. The defense also called into question the lack of physical evidence linking their clients to the murders. While the prosecution did have a gun, a knife, and the nylon rope used in the murders, the defense argued that these items did not have a direct link to their clients. Despite no physical evidence linking the men to the crimes, the jury decided to convict Edward and Robert. Edward was found guilty of the second-degree murder of Larry and the first-degree murder of Beverly. Robert was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Larry, and Carl was acquitted and left the court a free man. The men were convicted and were sentenced to life plus 25 years for the murders of Larry and Beverly. Edward appealed his conviction in June of 1971. The appeal addressed multiple issues, as appeals usually do, but the main focus was on the testimony given by Nikki and Lorraine. Edward's team argued that the women should have had a psychiatric assessment before being allowed to testify, a motion that was denied at trial. However, Edward's lawyer had the opportunity to request an assessment again with the trial judge, and they failed to do so. Despite this, Edward's appeal was decided on December 27, 1971, and his conviction was upheld. Robert appealed in January of 1972, and his appeal was decided quickly. Just as in Edward's appeal, he argued that Nikki and Lorraine should have had psychological evaluations before being allowed to testify at his trial, but he was given the same answer that Edward was. Despite their appeals being denied and their convictions being upheld, the men served incredibly short prison sentences. Edward served three years before being paroled, and Robert, who had prior violent convictions, was denied parole at first, but then paroled seven years after his conviction. In the minds of some, namely author Phil Stanford, The reason that they were let out of prison so soon after they were convicted was very simple. There was doubt as to whether or not the pair were actually guilty of these crimes. In the book that Phil wrote on the murders, he outlined some shady police conduct, such as questioning Nikki until she came up with a version of events that they wanted, and losing the swabs that they took from Beverly's autopsy. Much like other famous historic crime scenes, such as the Basilica Axe Murder House, people were allowed to wander the scene and contaminate it, leading to evidence being compromised. In Phil's mind, the wrong men were arrested for the crime, and he points to Ed Edwards, who I mentioned earlier in the episode. Ed Edwards was arrested near the scene of the crime on unrelated charges, 
with an unexplained bullet wound in his arm. Although he did explain away the wound, he would later confess to murdering two couples, one in Ohio and one in Wisconsin, whose murders were very similar to those of Larry and Beverly. In an interview with filmmakers from Paramount, Phil Stanford points out a police report that states that Beverly, according to acquaintances, had become familiar with a recently released ex-convict from Montana. While this man is not named, Phil believes the man to be Ed Edwards. It is speculated that Ed Edwards was responsible for multiple Lovers Lane's murders from the 1950s, and some even believe that he's the Zodiac Killer. There's a great podcast called The Clearing that's all about Ed Edwards, so I won't go into a lot of detail here, as the show is very comprehensive as well as very captivating. But I will say that the Ohio and Wisconsin and Great Falls, Montana murder all have striking similarities to the murders of Larry and Beverly. Ed Edwards died in prison in 2011, so we may only continue to speculate about his involvement. Was he actually responsible for the murder of Larry Payton and Beverly Allen? Or were the police correct with their arrest of Edward Jorgensen and Robert Robert? And that wraps up the show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I wanted to give a huge thank you to Jess for her research and writing assistance in this episode. For more information on the episode, visit the website misconductpodcast.com. You'll find links to further reading on the episode and more information about misconduct. If you have a second, head on over to my social media pages to let me know what you think about this week's episode and share your thoughts and opinions with other listeners. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. And finally, if you have a case that you would like to see covered, I added a case submission tab to my website. You can find a link to it in the show notes, and I really like taking suggestions from listeners. So if you submit a case, I will do my best to cover it on a future episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.